A game that I enjoyed as a young kid was the game of Monopoly. All of us have probably played Monopoly at some point. The game was first introduced by Parker Brothers in 1935. And as a kid, there was that thrill of just opening the box and getting a hold of that cash. Nothing said wealth like a handful of pastel-colored bills. And it was great to start acquiring more money and more properties. And it was fine if you got a St. James Place or a, a Baltic Avenue, maybe a railroad station, But do you remember what the most coveted properties in Monopoly are? Boardwalk and Park Place. And once you got the properties, that wasn't enough. You then had to start developing those properties. (laughs) Somebody said greed. Greed set in. And you start developing them with the little houses and and the little hotels And it was great when people started landing on those properties because then they started paying you rent. And and the power became intoxicating. But do you remember what you tried to avoid on on the game board? Jail. Yeah, jail. The picture on the game board of that criminal behind bars put fear in every child's heart to avoid serious jail time. And you also felt that sense of trepidation, you know, when you landed on chance or community chest because you had to draw the card and and it could have some great news on it, like uh, get out of jail free or you've won second place in a beauty contest. But those cards could also have some bad news on them, like go directly to jail, do not pass go, do not collect $200. Or you might read some discouraging news, like pay a tax, you know, pay a poor tax, pay a school tax, pay a luxury tax. And as a kid, I didn't know what taxes were. All I saw was the the picture of the Monopoly guy with his pockets turned out, and, and they were empty pockets, and so taxes equaled bad. I didn't want to give that hard earned Monopoly money back to the bank. But with tax day, April 15th, just around the corner, I need to not be so negative about taxes. Shouldn't we have a tax appreciation Sunday? (laughs) You know, we we get to honor the moms on Mother's Day and the the dads on Father's Day. Why not celebrate the, the time in which we get to give back to Uncle Sam every year? Why not have a sermon on taxes today? Two people just walked out in the back. Um, This passage is not about taxes. It talks about taxes. But our message this morning is all about Jesus and the supremacy of Christ. There are several preachers that I started listening to in college on the radio and on tape, and I really looked up to them because they were masters at at telling stories 
and uh, handling God's word, but, but really so great at using illustrations to make a spiritual point. Men like Chuck Swindoll and Tony Evans and Tommy Nelson. You know, our own Pastor Roger, he is a great storyteller. I mean, all he has to do is start telling one of his cop stories, you know, from his days on the Dallas PD, and, and right away, I am locked in. But none can compare with Jesus. He spoke in such a way, communicating spiritual truth using everyday life that was unparalleled. Today, we tend to use things in our culture like uh, sports metaphors or, or technology to relate to others. Jesus was doing the same thing 2,000 years ago, speaking in parables, using the things around him that everyone at that time could relate to or identify with. Sheep and shepherds, uh, fishing, working in a vineyard, planting seeds, paying taxes. Jesus would draw people in using these stories and then hit them right between the eyes with a spiritual truth that would then force them to look at their own hearts and their own need for repentance and faith in Christ. But Jesus didn't simply just tell stories. He also did the miraculous. Again, using the things around him. Changing water to wine, putting mud on the man's eyes to give him sight, the calming of the seas. His miracles met people right where they were. And we find one such miracle here in Matthew chapter 17, verses 24 through 27. When they came to Capernaum, those who collected the two drachma tax came to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the two drachma tax? He said, Yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, meaning Peter, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth collect customs or poll tax? From their sons or from strangers? When Peter said, from strangers, Jesus said to him, then the sons are exempt. However, so that we do not offend them, go to the sea, throw in a hook, and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for you and me. There are 35 miracles recorded in the Gospels. And if I were to ask you to start naming the top 10 miracles of Christ, it would be a while before you might get to this one. It might not even be in your top 20 here in Matthew 17. You would probably first think of all of the healings and uh, the casting out of the demons, the stilling of the storms, the walking on water, the feeding of the 4,000, the feeding of the 5,000, the raising of Lazarus from the dead. It would be a while down that list of 35 miracles before you might remember this one. Perhaps because it's just a small little story here, only found here in Matthew's gospel. 
Perhaps because it's a miracle that involves taxes. So we might quickly skim over it to something that seems more exciting. You know, miracles and taxes don't really go together unless the IRS is giving you money back. Now that's a miracle. But after hearing Dr. Charles Ryrie speak on this passage from his book that he wrote called The Miracles of Our Lord, this story resonated with me in a new way. It's a reminder that there is always something new to discover in God's Word. We could read it cover to cover, year after year, and never fully exhaust the eternal truths found within. One writer described this story as a nut with a dry, hard shell, but within you find a very sweet kernel. So let's crack open the shell a bit and get to the kernel. In Matthew 17, Jesus and his disciples come to Capernaum, and it looks like the group is once again crashing at, at Peter's house. Peter's mother-in-law might have been getting tired of these, these 13 guys tracking in all the dust and the mud from all their travels. But if you remember, Jesus healed the mother-in-law back in Matthew 8. So maybe the mother-in-law was willing to look past some of these things. Uh, but it's here at Peter's house where the Jewish IRS catches up with all of them. And it's audit time. But this wasn't one of those, those hated Roman taxes. This was a Jewish domestic tax of a half shekel that every Israelite over 20 years old was asked to pay. It was, it was a voluntary tax that was first established by Moses in Exodus 30 to pay for the maintenance of the temple and its ministry. It was a tax for the upkeep of the church. So if every Jewish male over 20 was asked to pay this temple tax, why did they single out Peter? Was he the only one who looked to be over 20 years old? Was he the only one who happened to be outside at the time? Was it because Peter appeared to be the leader amongst the disciples? Probably they approached Peter because Peter was the head of the house. So they asked Peter, doesn't your teacher pay the half shekel tax? As usual, Peter first leads with his mouth instead of his mind. And before thinking, Peter says, sure he does. But you can imagine Peter as he backpedals in his mind a bit. And he thinks, wait a second, maybe Jesus pays, but he doesn't really have to pay. At the time, rabbis are, were exempt from the tax, so maybe Jesus can simply play the, the rabbi card, and he doesn't have to pay. And even bigger than that, Jesus is God in the flesh. I just acknowledge that he was, so maybe he doesn't have to pay. But before Peter can bring up the conversation Jesus knows what Peter is thinking and what Peter has just said because Jesus sees and knows all. Proverbs 5.21 reminds us that the ways of man are before the eyes of the Lord and he watches all our paths. Jesus 
knows Peter's thoughts. So he takes this moment not to talk about taxes, but to address something far greater. He asks, what do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth collect taxes? From their own sons or from strangers? If a ruler conquered another country, in this case Rome ruling over Palestine, then the Romans taxed the people that they conquered so that the Roman citizens themselves wouldn't have to pay. So Peter thinks no king is going to collect taxes from his own people. So Peter says the king collects from strangers. And as God's son, Jesus is exempt from the tax. Earlier in this chapter, God declared Jesus to be the son of God at the Mount of Transfiguration in verse 5. And as the son, he sees all and he knows all and he knows the thoughts and the hearts of men. He looks upon us at all times. Nothing is hidden from his sight. His look can be a look of conviction. As when he looked upon Peter in Luke twenty-two sixty-one, as a rooster crowed in the background. His look can be a look of compassion as he gazed upon the rich young ruler in Mark ten twenty-one, who was too much in love with the things of this world to follow Jesus. But above all, he sees into our hearts. 1 Samuel 16, 7 says that man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. He sees and knows all, and Jesus owns all. Psalm, 21, Psalm 24, 1 says, The earth is the Lord's, and all it contains. If the Son of God has control and authority over the earth, then certainly the temple belongs to him. In Malachi, just one book to the left in your Bible, the last book of the Old Testament before 400 years of biblical silence, we see the prophetic word from Malachi about John the Baptist and Jesus the Messiah. It says in Malachi 3.1, Behold, I'm going to send my messenger, referring to John the Baptist, and he will clear the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Students can get an exemption from final exams if they possess or own a certain GPA. Jesus here in Matthew 17 claims exemption from the tax because as the Son of God, he owned and had authority over the temple. Since the tax was taken to support the temple, which was his father's house, Jesus and all those attached to him did not have to pay to support it. That's why he cleansed the temple in John 2. In defense of his father's house, he said, Stop making my father's house a place of business. But Jesus says to Peter, We could make a big deal about this, but let's not offend these tax collectors. Jesus was quite prepared to give offense if this issue had been central to his mission. 
But he says, so as to avoid creating any barrier between us and them, let's pay this tax. He didn't want to give the authorities any unnecessary grounds by which to accuse him. We must also live today in a way that is above reproach to governing authorities and to an unbelieving world. Sometimes what we might think are seemingly harmless issues, they might be causing larger issues for others. So we might need to curb some of those liberties to prevent others from stumbling in their spiritual progress. I heard the story about a pastor who was approached after one of his sermons by a man who said, you know, I remember you, you used to always tell that one funny story in your sermons, but you don't tell it anymore. And the pastor said, yeah, that, that story always got big laughs. But the punchline was a little gray in the sense that it was a little inappropriate, a little insensitive. And the pastor then tells the man why he stopped telling that story. He said one day he went to go speak to a mentor of his, the late Howard Edward Butt, Mr. H-E-B, a great Christian businessman. The pastor goes to Mr. H-E-B, and he says, do you think I should tell that one funny story that I like to tell in my, in my sermons? And Mr. H-E-B said, yeah, I think so. It, it is funny. Uh, you should go ahead and tell it. But if you do so, I would not mention God the rest of your message. It was a wise rebuke. If you want to tell that joke, that's fine. But be prepared to possibly cancel out the rest of your message with that punchline. So we need to ask ourselves, is the glory of God worth those laughs or that compromise? Sometimes little things can become big issues. So oftentimes, it's not even worth it. So we need to seek God's wisdom when picking some of these battles and issues. And Jesus didn't want to punt his ministry over a half shekel. But Jesus didn't have any money on him to pay the tax. When I was in that situation in high school and I was at TU with my friends, I would give that line, Hey, guys, I seem to have forgotten my wallet. You know, can, you, can you spot me this one time and I'll, I'll pay you back? But Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't have to do that. He owns all. And to show that he owns all, the temple, even all of creation, he says, Peter, go to the, go to the sea, throw in a hook, something that you love to do, you know how to do it well, catch a fish, and inside that fish, you will see a shekel coin in the fish's mouth that will be enough to pay for my tax and yours. 
You wonder what Peter was thinking as he walked away from Jesus. What a random, odd set of instructions. But Peter probably thought, why not? After all that I've witnessed, all of the miracles that I've even been a part of myself, walking on the waves, why not this one? I think back to when my brother Sam and I would go to South Padre Island uh, during the summers in our early college years, and we would drive down there with, with a group of buddies, and usually we would be at the beach all day, and then in the evenings, we would drive back over that Queen Isabel Causeway there into uh, Port Isabel, and off to the right there is that fishing pier. Some of you probably fished there before, and it juts out there into Laguna Madre Bay, into the Gulf of Mexico, and uh, we would go out there late at night, and of course a group of guys can't simply just enjoy nature and the experience. There had to be some kind of competition or wager involved. These were those same guys that pushed me into eating that habanero pepper that I told you about a while ago. You know, that's some real quality friends. Uh, but anyway, we would split into teams and, and take different sides of the pier and see who could catch the most fish. But this wasn't exactly, you know, a river runs through it fly fishing. Uh, my pole may have had a bobber on it, if that's that little round thing that I'm thinking of. Uh, I had to look up some of the words for this message. And uh, I was using the Walmart fishing pole, you know, just a level above the, the Barbie fishing pole. And I didn't have any intricate lures or, or fish calls. You know, I'm not what you would consider an outdoorsman. You know, I would rather consider myself an all-inclusive man. And, but for that one night in South Padre, you know, I was just a man with a worm. And all I had to basically do was push and release the button, whatever that is called. And the hook would go literally right below the pier. And it wasn't long before you felt a tug on the line. And pretty soon I was pulling up the little speckled trout. You know, I know that you're supposed to exaggerate fish stories, but, but these were small, tiny fish. But it didn't matter. We would still yell and, and go to battle with that fishing pole like we had hooked, you know, a big blue marlin, you know, old man in the sea style. And, and uh, I'm sure people on the pier were thinking, these guys are crazy. You know, these legitimate anglers, I had to look up that word too, but these, these professional fishermen and fisherwomen were looking at us because we were yelling and getting excited about these little fish. Because it, it counted as a point for your team. And these fish, again, they were not much bigger than the bait that we were using. We were getting so much fish in the same exact spot that I began to wonder if I was catching the same exact fish over and over again. I even considered using a, a hook to etch a little X on the scales to see if that was happening. You know, but I didn't want PETA on my back, so I, I decided against that and would throw the fish back out there. But I think the chances of that happening 
were pretty slim when you consider the vast size of where we were fishing. Uh, The Gulf of Mexico is the ninth largest body of water in the world and yields more shrimp and fish and shellfish than the South and Mid-Atlantic and Chesapeake and New England areas combined. Thank you, Wikipedia. (laughs) And that's just the fish caught. So there's no possible way that I was catching the same fish over and over again. But what about Jesus? Psalm 8, 7 through 8 reminds us that God rules over all. The beasts of the fields, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea. Jesus, as God's son, is over all. So he could not only catch the same fish over and over again if he wanted to, but the very fish that could help him pay the tax and not cause those around him to stumble. The miraculous was not an issue for Jesus because he controls all. Psalm 103, 19 tells us that the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all. Jesus and his disciples were at that northernmost point of the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus tells Peter, Go and drop your line. Take out the first fish that you catch in order to pay the tax. With April 15th approaching, some of you are hearing this message and and truly considering taking up fishing. (laughs) But for some of us, we may need to catch something a little bigger than a fish for all the coins that the IRS is wanting from us. You know, maybe a manatee or something. Um, But I was thinking about that one fish, that one fish that Peter hooked. How many fish were in the Sea of Galilee? I have no idea. Wikipedia was silent on that topic. We see a catch of fish in John 21.11 of 153 fish. But how many fish just happened to be swimming in that northern part of the lake where Peter was? Not sure. Let's say there was 100,000 fish in that one area of the lake. The fact that Peter, a professional fisherman, caught a fish wasn't a big deal. And that, that wasn't a miracle. But think about how many of those 100,000 fish might have had a coin in their mouth. Let's say, let's say a handful had coins in their mouth that they perhaps had not swallowed. But how many of those fish of whom had coins that had not yet been swallowed would have had the exact amount needed for both Peter's and Jesus' tax? How many fish swimming around would have that one particular coin And how many of those hundreds of thousands of fish out of the handful that perhaps had a coin in their mouth and then out of those that by chance possessed the exact coin needed, how many of those would be snagged by Peter on his very first cast? Just one. It had to have been that one fish. 
C.S. Lewis writes, There is no neutral ground in the universe. Every square inch, every split second is claimed by God. Everything is under his command. R.C. Sproul, the well-known theologian and Bible teacher, said that if I came to believe that there was one molecule outside of God's control, I would walk away from it all. Nothing is outside of his control. Jesus is who Peter confessed him to be, the Son of God, worthy of our worship and our trust. So Peter gets that fish and that coin, and he pays the tax that Jesus wasn't required to pay. It was not only a display of Christ's authority and supremacy overall, but a sign of his submission and humility because Jesus serves all. Jesus could have easily brushed aside these tax collectors. He could have claimed his exemption as son, but he didn't want to offend them. Jesus' main message here wasn't, you need to pay your taxes in order to fulfill your civic responsibility. No, he was using this miracle to teach the implications of his deity and his supremacy. Jesus serves all. And his greatest act of service was still to come as he turned his face towards Jerusalem and the cross. The disciples liked to argue among themselves about about who was the greatest, and and they struggled with feelings of pride and pretension and self-assertion. But here we see Jesus humbly paying a tax that he did not really owe. He didn't owe it in the sense that he was Lord over the whole system. But his humility went a step further. As Lord over all, over all of creation, over the seas and the fish that swim in them, he decided to humbly rely on one of those fish in order to teach a greater lesson that Jesus sees and knows all. He controls all. He serves all. And one more, Jesus died for all. Before arriving in Capernaum, Jesus had told his disciples for the second time about his impending betrayal, arrest, crucifixion, death, and resurrection. The first time Jesus told them, Peter rebuked Jesus. But when he tells them again in verse 23 of this chapter of what's to come, the disciples become greatly distressed. It says they were filled with grief, but yet they still did not fully understand the extent of what Jesus was telling them. They didn't understand that Jesus had to die for all. We see that little preposition there, for, which means in the place of. He died in our place. If someone were to ask you, why did Jesus die? It would be true if you said because he loves us and because he set that example for us of how we are to love. And it would be true if you said he died 
for our benefit? All of those answers would be correct. But I think the most precise answer of that question, why did Jesus die, is he died to be our substitute. The great English preacher of a previous generation, Charles Spurgeon, preached these words. If any man or woman here should be in doubt on account of ignorance, let me as plainly as I can state the gospel. I believe it to be wrapped up in one word, substitution. Spurgeon continues, I've always considered with Luther and Calvin that the sum and substance of the gospel lies in that word, substitution. Christ standing in the place of man. I was that criminal in the courtroom of God. I was guilty and deserving of death because of my sin. The judge's gavel was about to be dropped on my sentence. And as I was about to be led away for execution, suddenly one who is pure and perfect, he who knew no sin, stands up and says, Stop! Wait! And he walks over. And he takes over, he, he takes off my handcuffs. That which held me bondage to my sin. And he looks over at the judge and says, Now consider me the prisoner. Pass your sentence on me. Let me die. The Savior then says to the courtroom, This man, Will Davis, deserved death. But let me take his place instead. Christ then comes up behind me. And he says, here, take my robe. Put it on. My robe of perfect righteousness. And you shall stand before God as if you were me. And then he says, and I will stand before God as if I had been the sinner. I will suffer in your place and you will be saved, not for the works that you do, but for what I have already done for you on the cross. Jesus willingly died to take our sins, our punishment, our death, Upon himself. And then he rose again so that we might live. Yes, he died because of love. Yes, he died to set an example and because of our benefit. But if being our substitute is not the reason he died, then his death has no eternal significance. The tax at the center of this story this morning was a temple tax. But it was also known in Exodus 30 as an atonement tax or the atonement money. In the Old Testament system of worship, in order to remove the effects of sin and restore fellowship with God, one had to make an offering of an animal or in this case money to atone for or cover that sin. 
The miracle this morning is not about taxes. It's not about money. It's not about a coin and a fish. It's all about Jesus, his supremacy over all. And he uses this illustration of the atonement tax to indicate that the old system of worship was on its way out. Jesus said in Matthew 12, 6, something greater than the temple is here. The place was giving way to the person. Money and animal sacrifices through the old system were no longer sufficient. That age of coming to God through Jesus was now upon them. Peter later writes in 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious what? Blood. Precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. It makes you wonder if perhaps Peter was thinking of this miracle with the fish when he wrote those words. Atonement is no longer possible through a tax. Redemption, paying that ransom that we owe to God because of our sin, is no longer possible through silver or gold. The only payment sufficient is the payment of blood, the blood of God's own Son, the blood of the Lamb. It's safe to say that you didn't come here this morning to hear from me. You came this morning because you wanted to hear from God through His Word, through worship, through prayer. I hope you came because you wanted to hear from Jesus. You're wondering, what does Jesus want me to hear from his word? What does Jesus want me to know for my life today? What is his will for my life? Perhaps you're here and you're someone that has placed your faith in Jesus. But maybe today you would say that you're truly not following him. And it's time for you to begin walking and talking and serving and loving more and more like Jesus did. Maybe someone else is here and you would consider yourself a believer, but you've placed upon yourself unnecessary burdens and demands on your life which have little to do with the core truths of the Christian faith. So perhaps God is calling you to humbly submit to that kindly yoke of Jesus. Maybe someone else is here and you've spent your life running from God. You're like that sheep in Isaiah 53, 6, who has gone astray and turned to your own way. But Jesus, the good shepherd, is calling you to himself. Believe in me. I took your sins. I died for you. Your past mistakes that you keep beating yourself up about, there's no need to carry out another sentence against that sin. It's been paid for. That's why Jesus, as he hung on the cross, said those final words, it is finished. That's a little word, tetelestai, which simply means paid in full. The debt that we owe to God because of our sin was paid in full by Jesus. Jesus. 
And it was like a stamp soaked in his own blood. And he looked down at the ugliness of our sin and our hearts. And he stamped it paid in full. Years ago, when people needed to buy milk, either, you either had to uh, get it delivered in, in glass bottles or, or pitchers, or, or you had to take your own little bottle or pitcher from home and take it to the store and have it refilled. So one day, a young man sees a small boy, about six years old, walking out of a store carrying one of these glass pitchers from home. And as the little boy is leaving the store, making his way carefully back toward home, he slips and he falls and the glass pitcher breaks and milk runs all over the sidewalk. And the boy starts crying, so the man sees this and he rushes over to the boy to make sure the boy isn't hurt and the boy isn't hurt from the glass. But the young man still can't comfort this boy. The boy is so upset, and the little boy is sobbing, and he's trying to catch his breath, and he says, my mom is going to punish me for this. And the man thinks, well, maybe the pitcher can still be put back together again if it's not in too many pieces. But he quickly realizes that it is broken beyond repair. So he says, come with me, son. And he picks the boy up and carries him in his arms to another store that sells household items, and he buys him a brand-new, shiny glass pitcher. And then they return to the grocery store and get the new pitcher washed out and, and filled with milk, and the man walks the boy home. And as the boy carefully makes his way up the front step, the man says, Do you think your mom will punish you now? And a smile breaks out on the boy's face, and he says, No, sir, because this is a much better pitcher than the one that we had before. The pitcher of your life was once broken. Maybe it's broken right now. And you've tried to piece it all together yourself, but you found out that it was damaged beyond repair. But it's in your brokenness and your hopelessness and in the despair of your depravity that Jesus, who sees all and knows all, who owns all and controls all and serves all and died for all, he looks down at us and he says, stop stop trying to patch up your life on your own. Let me carry you in my arms. Let me pay for your sin with a payment of my blood shed on the cross for you. And what I'm purchasing for you is an entirely new nature, a new life. You are now a new creation in Christ and possess a new identity as sons and daughters of God. But it's not because of the good in you. Jesus says it's because of my loving kindness, my tender mercies, and my grace. Monopoly was a lot of fun to play as a kid because you, you got to have all of that, that money and there was that thrill of, of wealth and power. But there always came that time when you had to put away the money, put away the little 
hotels. And then you had to finally close the box on the game. There will be a day soon when someone will have to close the box on your life. Someone will close a casket. And all the money, all the properties, all the things of this world that we gave so much attention to will no longer matter. All that matters at that moment will be our standing in God's eyes and our identity in Christ. Did we walk in his footsteps? Did we place our faith in him? Did we pursue him with all that we are and all that we have? Let's pray. Father God, we read in 1 Peter 3.18 that you sent your son to die for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us back to you, God. We look to Jesus as Lord of all and the one who sees all, owns all, controls all, serves all, and died for all. For you died not while we were your friends, but while we were your enemies. You reconciled us to the Father through your death on the cross, Jesus. And now having been reconciled, we shall be saved. And Father, if you worked in such a miraculous way to put a coin in a fish's mouth, we know, Lord, that you can certainly work wonders in our own life. You can bring about healing. You can mend relationships. You can bring us joy and fulfillment by your Spirit working in us and through us. And I pray that if there is anyone here who has not yet given their lives to you, that today they would place their faith in Christ alone by simply confessing with their mouths and believing in their hearts that Jesus is Lord, the Lord of all. And by your grace, your great grace, they would receive that gift of eternal life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We have prayer partners down here that would love to pray with you and encourage you at this time. But I pray that you have a blessed Lord's Day.